HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset, made in France since 1925. The first and finest enameled cast iron cookware and a favorite for generations. For more information, visit lecreuset.com. That's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T dot com. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie Mosman-Wadler, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat and Three, our weekly food news roundup. This week, we're looking at the way labels shape our perspectives on food. I know you're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but is it acceptable to judge a wine by its label? There are some labels that I'd say are so bad they're good. As long as your paperwork's in good shape, you'll get a grass-fed label. Tune in to this week's Meat and Three on Heritage Radio Network. That's meat plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. late this time, but I was early last time, so yeah. if you average it out, it's my normal time of noonish to like, you know, balances. one. What? It all balances out. It all balances out in the end. In the end, we all end up in the same box and or jar and or sprinkled over the same ocean. Uh, <laughs> Join as usual with Nastasia the Hammer Lopez. How you doing? Good. Yeah? You got mm-hmm. Matt in the booth. How you doing? Great. Yeah? Call in all of your uh, election or food-related questions to... 718-497-2128. That's 718-497-2128. Today is election day. Uh, Nastasia has not yet voted. What about you, Matt? That's the first thing I did this morning. Yeah? I got up, voted, got a bagel. It's a yeah? New York life. Nice. How was the bagel? It was totally adequate. Ooh. An, an adequate bagel is so sad. Can I tell you the worst thing I've done in years? Go. I bought a bagel at a supermarket for my children. Oh my god, what do you don't like them, huh? <laughs> yeah, I mean it was like <clears throat> for those of you that don't live in the greater New York area or any other area that has uh, you know, a high enough concentration with a real kind of Jewish culture, supermarket bagels are garbage. I don't know why it is that supermarkets can't produce a decent bagel or get someone who can produce a decent bagel to ship it to them, but even a relatively high-end supermarket, or one that attempts to be high-end, their bagels are, by and large, wretched. You know what I'm saying? Like, why is that? I don't know. 
why are why why is it that like this is like my kids whenever we travel they're like I'm gonna get a bagel I'm like we're in the middle of nowhere the bagels are not gonna be good it's just gonna be like poorly made bread donuts they're gonna suck you know what I mean Nastasia you ever had a good bagel like in like you know in a non bagel zone no are there good bagels in L A no Mm-mm. I have never, I've not been to Montreal in many years, but even the Montreal bagel, I'm looking, I look at it with a little bit of side eye because they don't put salt in their bagels. Like everything else sounds great. You know what I mean? Like the, the wood fired ovens, nanny, nanny, poo, poo, all of that, the culture, the history, oh, we make great smoked this and that. No salt. We've had this discussion before, Nastasia. Like, you know, they're the Tuscany of bagels. Mm-hmm. Weird. You already have a caller. That's how rabid your fan base is. Nice. All right. Well, it's been, well, to be fair, we should have been on the air 25 minutes ago. Caller, you're on the air. Hey, Dave. It's, uh, it's Matt from Mystic. Hey, how you doing? You vote yet? Uh, I did. I voted this morning. Nice. Right. So what's yeah. up? Um, so I'm in the process of upgrading my knives. Right. And uh, I bought the Duo Sharp stone, the DMT. The big one? That you recommend. Yeah, yeah, the 10-inch uh, fine, extra fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, I don't know. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to get handy with the hand sharpening before I actually kicked up for good knives. Right. And I can't tell if, like, my existing knives are so crappy that I can't get a good edge on them or if I'm just bad at hand sharpening. So I wanted to know if you had any um, tips and tricks to get the most out of the duo sharp. What kind of knives do you have now? I mean, I have one of those like Victorinox Fibrox chef's knives. Are they stamped or are they like, forged? Uh, I think that one is stamped. Okay. Uh, most, you know, they're like, they're pretty garbage. So. I like how that's your knife, but yet you own a Spinzol. Strong. Yeah. Well, it's like my one bit of uh, kitchen heterodoxy. Yeah, you know, it's yeah. like, I, I just, I didn't think uh, good knives were that important. But now, you know. I'm almost 40, so I got to... Yeah, yeah, time to step up. All right, so listen. Adult, you know, adulthood. <laughs> so, uh, look, the, when you're sharpening a knife, right, the, the kind of the, the crucial thing is, one, to get... And there's many, many schools of thought on this, right? But in general, you're going to want to take the rougher side of the stone. There are people who say that you need an even coarser stone if the edge needs to be taken down a lot. I don't really believe that. That's what I'm that. wondering. Yeah, yeah, I don't really believe that. I think that's horse crap. I mean, you know, uh, people who put very rough edges on things, like, use literally, like, large flat plate grinders, like spinning plate grinders, which I don't recommend you do with, with your knives. But if you're on the fine side, which is the red side, right, uh, <clears throat> the main thing is to just kind of, you, you, I, you know, I'd put some, some glasses on or a magnifier, take a look at the edge of your knife, right? So in a forge or even somewhat to an extent, I guess, in stamp knives, right, you, the body of the knife has its own kind of angle. And then when you get down towards the cutting edge, there's the ground-in edge, and that ground edge has its own angle, right? Now, yeah. uh, if you believe the old, old school old, old, old school people who are dealing with, uh, I don't think necessarily that the super high-tech steel people do this anymore, but it used to be at the very, very, very cutting edge, there was yet another another angle, right? And the idea, it was you go to, you know, to, uh, you know, you go, the, the angle becomes 
uh, kind of larger and larger to become more and more sturdy, but because it's smaller and smaller, it's still sharp. Does that make sense? So like the old yep. school people would, you at first you'd make sure that the body of your blank had the correct kind of angle and they're, you know, the good ones can, you know, be concave as they go down or you can have crazy grantons or whatever in the hell you need. But then you have your actual cutting edge bevel uh, and that, that bevel is the one that we talk about when we're talking about like a, a Western style knife, which is equal on both sides, right? Versus a Japanese style, traditional Japanese, which is basically flat on one side and angled on the other. Um, so that initial cutting edge is the kind of most important thing to kind of get right. So you have to look at it uh, with a pair of glasses. The old schoolers, what they would do when you're learning is you would take uh, a Sharpie or something like this and you'd mark along the cutting edge and then you just take a light swipe and then you look at it again and you can see if you're hitting too in other words if you're if you're if the back of the of the knife is too high and so you're making you know uh you know too large of an included angle there right you'll notice that you're taking off only metal at the very edge of your of your blade likewise if you're too shallow if the back of your blade is too close to your cutting stone then you'll notice that you're taking off metal that is much closer to the uh, body of the knife itself and you're not taking off anything that's on the edge and when you get that when you get that angle just right you should be wiping that sharpie off relatively evenly across the entire cutting edge right and so that's a good way of figuring out like kind of what the angle of your knife is now if you want to change that angle right you can go more uh, ag aggressive so the the smaller the angle is uh, in other words the the closer the back of the blade is to the stone as you're sharpening the sharper in quotes you'll be but the more fragile your blade will be uh, the the cutting edge will be and the more easy likely it will be to crack or chip or or roll over right so the first thing you got to do is see whether you're getting your angle right i think people freak out about getting their angle exactly right but if you just pick up your knife and do long strokes and try to keep the angle relatively constant over the length of the stroke. You don't have to be some, you know, like seventh generation master Japanese sharpener to be able to properly sharpen a kitchen knife. So I just wouldn't get that worked up about it. But the key thing okay. is, is that once you find that angle and you, and you go, you have to keep going until you have done what's called form a burr along the entire edge of the blade. And so if you, again, you look under glasses, you'll notice that like once you have sharpened it down, um, the edge will become very, very thin at the end and almost what's called roll up or form a burr on the side that's facing facing up, right? Not the side that's facing the stone, the side that's facing up. And you should do one side at a time while you're starting, right? Um, and then what you'll do is, is you can run your, your thumb like starting like, you know, from the dull side down across the, across the edge, right? And you'll feel something that catches on your thumbs. Feel it and then flip it over and you'll feel what it feels like on the non-burr side and it should feel different. You've caught the edge as you go down. So you'll see that you've what's called a form of, formed a burr on the edge of your on edge all the way down. And a lot of times if you haven't sharpened your knife in a long time or if your knife has been bent, what you'll notice is, is you'll get a burr edge in a couple of places. Like maybe you'll get a burr edge near the point Maybe you'll get some in the mid, in the belly, but you're missing some in the front. And a lot of times that's because your knife has been dented or whatever, but you need to get that burr edge along the entire line of your, of your edge or, or you're not going to, not going to win. Right. Then yeah, that's what I was. Yeah. So that's what I was wondering is like when I was feeling for the burr, it felt like it was either like on opposing sides, like there was a burr on one side and then the other. 
basically what you described. Like, I was wondering if that was possible. So yeah, what you and, just yeah, and you focus, so. and you can go down, and you can put a little more energy. <laughs> like, it's good, like, a lot of the time to do relatively long strokes that take up a... Now, the Japanese don't do this. The Japanese do little small areas and circling when they're doing their initial stuff, right? So, like, they don't do right. that. But, you know, for me, I find that I get a more, you know, it's easier for me if I, I focus on an area that needs focusing on. And so I'll do mostly straight pushes, right, to get that area in shape. But then I try to do some, like, slide pushes that kind of engage more of the blade so that I'm not, like, effing up one part of the blade, you know, and, and you know, not the other. If, you know, because you can over hone one side and then, then you have to take the whole knife down to that. So once you get a good burr edge on one side, right, assuming you're not too far gone, you get one good burr edge, then you flip it over and you do the burr. Once you do that, then you can switch to the uh, finer stone. And you need to, the, the trick when you're doing this is to do finer, lighter and lighter pressure as you go. So if your first hits are relatively aggressive, right, your last couple of hits where you're going on the, on the two sides should be just the weight of the knife, really. Do you know what I mean? And then yeah. uh, I, al- I also, uh, you know, if I have the time uh, or if I have the stuff, I'll strop it. I'll, like, reverse strop it to knock any burrs off of it or even just take it on my, uh, on my apron or on my pants sometimes and just, like, knock, you know, n- you know like, dr- draw it the other way to knock off, you know, uh, the last because that can really increase the durability of uh, your blade. Now, I used to back when I used, you know, guides. And if, if you're interested in it, you can buy a cheap uh, guide. Like, there's expensive guides, uh, like, uh, what is it? Uh, I forget the names of them. Edge I Pro. Yeah, Edge Pro. Like, I have one, right? Like, those things. And they're good to try out so you can see what it's like to have, like, a, a like an extremely, like, machine, m- mainly machine-guided, accurate edge so you can see what the difference is. And it really, they're a pain in the ass. They really are useful. And, in fact, you know what? I'm going to go ahead and maybe recommend that you try one uh, or you can use Edge Sharp as another cheaper guide that like hunting knife people use. Uh, the Razor's Edge people put that out like you know decades ago, and that was the first guide that I ever owned. And I have their book, which although it's outdated, I think is still good. The Razor's Edge guide to sharpening. He's the guy that uh, had the world record in uh, speed shaving with a double bit axe. Uh, yeah, you heard me right, speed shaving with a double bit axe. But um, the information is probably outdated. But you know that's kind of where I learned to sharpen. Um, and he actually recommends the two-part sharpening. So you take it down to a good edge, and then you do a secondary small sharpening at a higher angle just to make a, what he calls a more durable edge. But I don't think very many people do that anymore. I think that's kind of maybe fallen by the wayside or, like, you know, is more important with older kind of steels. But I'm going to go ahead and say that it might be fun for you and worth the time and energy to buy one of those uh, sharpening rigs uh, like the Edge Pro just so you can see just so you can see what it's like to take something down to like a, you know, kind of mechanically perfect edge. You can see it, right? And then once you've done that a bunch, then I think you will be able to hand sharpen more easily, right? Uh, It's kind of of like the way they teach welding in reverse where they make you learn the hard stuff first and then, uh, and, you know, then teach you the easy stuff like MIG instead of reverse. I think you should learn the easy stuff first so you can get a feel for the tool first, you know, for, for like what you're doing and then move on to the harder stuff. But at this point in my life, it's so much easier to pull out the, the sharpening stone and just, you know, touch up my knives than it is to haul out the Edge Pro, bolt it down to the freaking table, choose the grit, set the knife, put the thing, shoop, 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 flip, shoop, shoop, shoop. You know, I mean, it's like, please, 
you know that's like yeah. mi- minutes of my life and like you know storing the stuff whereas like literally you know before i cut a steak i'll pull out my stone and i'm like shoop 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 sop sop done you know what i mean like real fast for a touch-up you know what i'm saying and if you ever get into japanese knives you're gonna need to be good with hand sharpening because uh, i mean i you just need to, you know, because they require they require more constant focus prior to every use. And once you get good with the sharpening stone, you'll get in the habit of just doing like a light touch up on the extra fine just before you use it every time. And that and it's my opinion, probably maybe right, maybe wrong. It's my opinion that just that super light touch up beforehand is helpful in maintaining kind of the longevity of, of like a really nice uh, edge. Yeah, so that that was the other thing I was going to ask is like, how frequently do you do the the full sort of sharpening routine? I mean, it really de- really depends. If like some knucklehead picks up your knife and cuts into a you know cast iron pot, then you need to do that right now. It's going to take you a long time because you might have to take chips out of it. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. It I mean a, a lot a lot depends. Uh, you know, my old butcher used to tell me never to put knives in a dishwasher, but uh, he he was, like, f- afraid that the heat does something. But I think it's more just the knife banging around in the dishwasher is reason not to do it. Um, but, you know, and plus the handle's made of wood. I'd like to hear some good arguments on not using a dishwasher on a modern knife as long as it was isolated so it wouldn't knock around. I'd like to hear the arguments. I don't know. Um, what are you thinking of buying? Uh, well, so I bought a Mac an eight inch Mac, uh, chef, Japanese style chef's knife. So uh-huh. it's like a single bevel. Um, and that's nice. It's like very, uh, very limber, very, very fast, you know? Yeah. Um, I used to have a Mac. I had a Mac, uh, Petty and another Mac. They were good. I liked them. Yeah. Um, and then I was, I don't know. I was thinking about just like the Wusthof classic, um, for sort of a European style. Yeah. I've never owned a, I've never owned a Wusthof. I've owned a bunch of Henkels and I've owned, uh, I've owned some old school sabatiers I really liked. You know, I think again yeah. you should find. Oh, that's the other, my dad actually has an old like sabatier slicer. Yeah. Uh, that I wanna. I was curious if it would be possible to rehab that. And that thing is like really beat up. I found it in like a kitchen drawer in the back. Uh, and I was wondering if I uh, bought my the DMT would. I bought my ten inch sabatier uh, at a thrift store for three dollars. I love that knife. Yeah, and it came right Do you back. You think you could bring that thing back? With yeah, because the, the steel the steel in those things is so easy to sharpen because it it rusts and everything, but it's stuff is so easy to sharpen. Those guys yeah, used to okay, sharpen yeah. it with like the worst stones in the world. Think about it. You know what I mean? Like they don't maintain their edge. You have to sharpen them a lot, but they're very easy to sharpen. Right. And I kind of like them. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I had one last thing. Oh, get a ten inch knife. Okay. You won't regret it. All right. Yeah. All right. Cool. Cool. All right. All right. Well, thanks as always for the help, man. Cool. Let us know how it works out. Will do. Cool. And you actually have another one online. All right. Put them through right now. Sure. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hey. Uh, hey, great to be talking to you guys. How you doing? Um, good. 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 Uh, hey, I found your uh, show about uh, three weeks ago, and I uh, kind of did a deep dive. Um, I've been really into it, so thanks for what you guys made. Mm. And uh, I got my girlfriend really into it, so now she talks to about you guys like all the time. Nice. So and, uh, so she and got women me. listen. Women Great. listen. All right, go ahead. <laughs> it's true. Um, so she got me uh, liquid intelligence for my birthday last week. Oh, great! Happy birthday! And, uh, it's been pretty fun. Oh, thank you. And uh, so the the red hot poker thing is interesting to me. And 
you, you say you won't sell me one. So, first of all, how dare you? Huh. Um, maybe Elon will. Um, but if I if I were to try a uh, a copper slug first, right? You you mentioned in the book that um, that some drinks like it doesn't affect it. Some it actually is kind of pleasant, and some it just makes it taste awful. That's correct. So, are there like drinks you can recommend, or is there a, like a, a systematic way to predict, like based on like the contents of the drink, like what what drinks like uh, uh, a uh, a copper would be good for? Sure. So, put a piece of copper in your mouth, and then drink, and you'll get kind of an, an idea. Now, you don't want to have copper in contact too long with acids in general, right? Because it'll form, you know, a certain amount of kind of toxic uh, copper salts. But it's not really in contact with it that long, and it's boiling so hard that I doubt you're even getting that much contact with meat. But just to get an idea, it tastes like you, like you're sucking on a like an old school penny, you know what I mean? A little bit. Okay. So like yeah. with certain, I've you know, I've had it taste okay in uh, mulled wines, you know, and Nils and I used to do like a glug recipe where we'd throw the red hot poker in. I mean, the reason we don't make those red hot pokers is, look, they're inherently freaking dangerous. And even if, oh, it, even if it wasn't yeah. for that, they burn out. You know what I mean? So like I'd sell someone and... You know, Nastasia and I don't want to have to deal with, you know, when they break, <laughs> us saying, well, we told you they were going to break. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You want to deal with that, Nastasia? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the so copper slug works. that is not works. the secret booker. What? I was saying that is not going to be the, the secret booker and Dax next item. No. Absolutely not. In fact, the last time I was in China, or two times ago when I was in China, I spoke to someone about trying to manufacture one even for the bar because I, I, I had to go make them again. You know, for a while, uh-huh. Piper was working with us, and Piper would make them. Now that, you know, Piper hasn't been here for years, now I have to make them again. I hate making them because it's boring. Like, making the making the 50th Red Hot Poker is boring. I haven't learned anything new. Actually, that's not true. I changed the recent batch a little bit. I just made 10 last week. I was trying to figure out how to integrate them into the bar. So anyway, I spoke to someone right. in China about manufacturing it, but it was that thing that where they clearly didn't understand what I wanted, and just like the, I was just projecting months into the future of trying to tell somebody what I wanted, and then that person not really caring about my problem and like not really giving me what I wanted, and that the level of like I, I felt my I felt like months of Ajita compressed into just twenty seconds of looking into this guy's eyes when I was at the at the trade show in China, and I just said to myself, "Yeah, nope." <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna do it. You know, I mean, for sure. Building stuff is a real freaking heartache. You know what I mean, Nastasia? Yep, it is. It's a real heartache because you have to rely on so many people that don't think about it the way that you think about it. Anyways, uh, but so a copper slug can work. You better have a very, very high output stove or put it on a high output stove and then hit it with a torch for a while too just to heat that slug up. And you're not going to get ignition with it the way that you get with uh, a red hot poker. However, uh, you might be able to get an ignition if you have an open flame source next to it and you poke it with an extremely hot slug. I have not tested that. Would, you, would I put the flame source like, like direct it at it or it just like have it nearby no if you like so if you stick the slug into the into the drink and then bring the lip of the glass under and there's an open flame or sparker there it should light because you've superheated the alcohol vapor and it's gonna be coming out kind of violently and it'll light up but really like you should be careful 
Um, you know, the only real injury we've ever had with a red hot poker was one of our bartenders years and years ago. The glass blew up, right? That was the problem. The glass blew up, and uh, just you know, from the thermal shock, it's glass. You know what I mean? And uh, it's only yeah. happened once. But then that shattered and it burnt his hand, and so then we made holders. So now the bartenders hold like a like a, a handle, and the glass is at the end of the handle. So even if the glass breaks, it doesn't like explode; it just goes down. Um, yeah, I've freaked some people out with the red hot poker failing. Uh, remember when we used to have it at the at the French Culinary Institute, and yes. those guys definitely did not want to do the red hot poker, yes. and they they used to freak them out all the time, and they would occasionally, you know. I would say, what are the words we use? Fail spectacularly, but um, it's it's rare. And uh, you know, the main thing when you're doing an electric red hot poker with failure is uh, is conditioning it for first use. Once you condition it for first use, it's pretty safe. Like most of the danger is if you don't condition it properly because it can overheat itself and blow out. But whatever, you know, I deal with it. Gotcha. Yeah. Would, would the rocks be a better experiment then? I have not had good luck with the rocks. And the other problem with the rocks is is that the hot rocks then are sitting in your drink, right? So you yeah. throw the rock in, then you have a hot rock in a drink, and so now what? I mean, the rock stays. It's cool, right? Um, I would yeah. try the, 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 the copper slug. It's easy to buy, and it's easy to try, so you can get an idea for it. Just let it heat for a long time. You could put, like, a little insulating blanket over the thing to kind of keep the heat in. Like you can get a very, very high temperature insulating blanket and just throw it over the poker when it's on the stove top. And that will, uh, <coughs> excuse me, that will allow you to kind of heat it up to a dull red, which is kind of where you want to be. And then you can kind of get into the fun of playing with these uh, with these drinks. But just be aware, it'll have a, a little bit of a copper taste. Awesome. Yeah, can't, can't wait for Christmas. Sounds good. Yeah. Today's program was brought to you by Le Creuset the first to pioneer colorful enameled cookware over 90 years ago. They've been a favorite for generations through the meals and memories the cookware creates and the style it expresses. My name is Kat Johnson. I'm the communications director at Heritage Radio Network. When I'm not making food radio, I'm making food, and my favorite cookware is the 8-quart marine blue Dutch oven that never leaves my stovetop. Before we got our Le Creuset, the cookware we used most often was an antique Griswold cast iron pan. It didn't take long for me to realize how much I'd been missing enamel cast iron in my life. Le Creuset has the superior heat retention of cast iron, but paired with the unparalleled performance and ease of enamel. That means delicious food with easy cleanup. Head to lecreuset.com slash HRN, that's L-E-C-R-E-U-S-E-T, dot com slash hrn to see all the new products and amazing holiday gift deals hrn listeners will get 20 percent off the new Le crusade cookbook with the code hrn all right caller you're on the air oh how you doing i'm doing great thanks i had a quick juicing question for you oh great um i was wondering uh, if you have any tips for juicing some more exotic fruits specifically longans and rambutans and mangosteen oh yeah. Uh, so mangosteen. Also, the the real question on like a mangosteen, for instance, is I've never eaten the seeds, right? So I don't know. I don't know if you were to like. I don't know. A. I don't know what kind of technologies you have, and B. I don't know how much damage it will do to the juice to smash those seeds up and then try to get the stuff out later. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, 
I know when we're doing stuff like Concord grapes, we don't blend the fruit or like do too intensive or hardcore of a juicing to it with a masticating juicer just because we'll release all of the astringent tannin out of the seeds and it ruins what is otherwise a delicious juice, right? Yeah. So for things like that, or I have done other big seeded things in the past uh, or things that don't want to be blended or juiced, uh, what I will usually do is I will um, just kind of knead them by hand with Pectinex Ultra SPL, and that breaks up the fruit, and then the seeds kind of drop out, and then you can puree and or filter and or do whatever you want with the with, you know clarify or whatever you're going to do to get the rest of the juice out. And I've done that with like strange like like there's a Senegalese fruit called Mod which has a giant seed in it. I've never done – I've done Spanish limes, which is a mamancillo, <laughs> which is kind of similar uh, structure. Yeah, those are tough with the pit. It's, yeah. Uh, it, the fruit is really stuck to it. Yeah. So, But I've done them this way mm-hmm. where you like throw them into a pot, you hit them with enzyme, and you just keep kneading them uh, you know, or you know, tumbling them or beat them. And then the enzyme will eventually eat the fruit away from the pit without having the – without chewing or destroying the pit. Um, and I might do a similar – I don't know what people do commercially. I should look this up for – you could also try a press, but then mm-hmm. you're, you're still going to be squashing those seeds flat. You know, I haven't started using our 20-ton press as a juicer yet or la- like last week, like I said, as a, as a nutsack squasher. Uh, uh-huh. like, a, like a Norwalk kind of setup? Yeah, yeah, but bigger. We've got to uh-huh. you know, squish giant nutsacks in our, in our, in our press. Um, uh-huh. Nut milk sacks. But the um, yeah, but I don't know. I should I should think about it. But like I think if you, even if you're not going to use a spinzol or do anything like that, I think like hitting those with uh, with an enzyme that breaks down uh, pectin and hemicellulose is going to be your first step to kind of getting those seeds off of there. You know what I mean? Getting them out of there and like just getting the 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 fruit juice to liquefy. If that makes all sense. right. Yeah, that that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, sweet. I appreciate it. No problem. Let us know how it works, and I'll try to think about it more. Mangosteens. I mean, the thing about mangosteen, where do you live? I'm in New York. Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, the mangosteens here are garbage anyway, compared to like, I mean, they're good, but like, compared, yeah. compared to like where they're actually growing mangosteens. You ever like, yeah. you ever bought a sack of mangosteens directly from a place that grows mangosteens? Oh, yeah. Off the back of a truck in, in Thailand, it just doesn't get better than that. Right? Right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, like, once you've had that mangosteen, and you have like a, a New York City mangosteen where it's been like frozen or shipped. You're just like, oh, yeah, oh, you know what There's I mean? Some decent ones in Chinatown, but uh, you know it's slim pickings for that. Yeah, stuff. but also it's like, I mean, decent, sure, but I mean, like compared to like, I think the thing is like people who have a mangosteen here in New York City, right? They taste it. They're like, that's a good fruit. That's good. You know what I mean? But if you go, if you have a real one somewhere where they're actually growing those damn things and you have one fresh, you're like, holy crap, that is a great fruit. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's not like one of these. Yeah. It's not like one of these. Mangosteens are not a take it or leave it fruit. You know what I mean? Like they like when they're right. You know what I mean? They're mm-hmm. like they're they're top notch. You know what I'm saying? Oh, yeah. Uh, I wonder what happened to the juice. I wonder whether you lose. You know what? I wonder whether they would taste good clarified. I've clarified lychee. I haven't liked it. Sweaty. Mm-hmm. I don't like it. I don't like it's a lot. Sweaty? Sweaty. Something about lychee. I love lychees, but something about mm-hmm. like lychee things, like 
I don't know. It's like kind of sweaty, something, something animally sweaty. I don't like about it. Eh, I mean, I'm mm-hmm. willing to be, I'm willing to be, con- you know, convinced not. But uh, yeah, never been, never been a giant fan of lychee things. Lychee candies, because yeah. that's fake lychee. Lychee yeah. candies are fake lychee. Those are good. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Lychee fruit, delicious. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, uh, what do you like lychee, Nastasia? In yeah. general, what? Yes. But do you like canned lychees or those things? Sure. I don't know. We're good. Yeah. She doesn't care. She doesn't care about anything. Yeah. Anymore. All right. Well, I'll give it a shot and I'll uh, report back. All right. Cool. All right. Thank you. Right. Two minutes. All I know is, is that's you saying that. Matt didn't say that. After we, this. Oh, do we? Yes. Because I haven't spent enough time. I was yes. on the phone all morning with, yes. with China. Yes. Okay. Uh, tell people, and this is Nastasia talking, but some reason she's oh, talking yeah. through me. Uh, tell people to submit their Thanksgiving Sears all techniques to. Uh, why don't you say it since you really wrote me, i.e., you? Yeah, to my email. Right. And then you give the the you know how to film things. So tell them how to Thanksgiving Sears all techniques. Send your videos to my email. Yeah, please film them horizontally so they can be formatted like a human being and not no vertical. vertical. Yeah, vertical. You're gonna become one of those persons. We're like, not gonna on the use news. it if it's vertical. Yeah, where they have that background. I hate where they have that. the background where I they've like that. doubled it I and like put that. it next to yeah. each other and defocused it. That. It's so foolish. I hate that. So foolish. All right. Uh, okay. This Send question. them all before the 14th. All right. This question is from Pete from Saint Pete, which I appreciate. If I was my name was Peter and I was from Saint Pete, I would be called Pete from Saint Pete for sure. Hey, Dammer, uh, hey, Hammer, Dammer. Hey, Hammer, Dave and Posse, I've been wanting to get a pressure cooker and did some research and found that the Instapot has come out, or is coming out, uh, with an electric pressure cooker that maintains 15 PSI while cooking called the Instapot Max. Have you seen, played with, or know anyone that has one of these? If it maintains 15 PSI, will it cover all of my bases that you said are problems with most electric pressure cookers? Uh, or is it self-venting, which is another big knock against it? I'll admit I like the ease of use of just hitting a button and letting it go, but I do plan to get an induction burner soon. I was wondering if I should just get to Coon Recon. Thanks for the time. Love the show. He's 150 episodes through the backlog. Oh, Jesus. Uh, okay, so um, uh, the answer is I don't know. I've looked into uh, the reviews of the Instapot uh, Max are not so good because the price is higher, and they say it actually takes longer to cook. Uh, and what that I'm assuming means is it takes longer to heat up and then longer to cool down. I'm not usually using a pressure cooker just for speed, so that's not a problem for me. Uh, I want the, you know, I want that kind of higher pressure and absolute amount of time to get to temperature and to get down isn't that important. But most people on the internets um, uh, have an issue uh, with it compared to the cheaper ones just because they thought it was going to be a whole lot faster because they had equated the higher pressure with faster cooking. And while it is true that uh, things will cook through faster at once you reach that temperature, it will also take longer for it to come back down uh, you know, off of pressure because of the extra pressure. Uh, and I don't know how their heating element works. It might not you know, uh, heat, heat as quickly. But that said, there are a lot of things that I really think 15 PSI is better for. There are things where you can do a lower PSI and just cook a lot longer. Um, I haven't done like all of the tests, but I know at the bar because people, you know, can't be trusted to maintain a pressure cooker. Uh, they, you know, we use an electric one and we just cook it longer to do our dulce de coconut. 
Uh, I haven't tested it with hameen eggs just because we're not using those at the bar right now. So uh, I, I don't know. I'll, and I haven't personally personally used one. The one thing I will note is, they, is that one of the reviewers, it took a, a preposterous amount of time for it to, to cool down uh, using the natural release method. So I'd want to make sure that there was something you could do to not have it take quite so long to do its natural release. Anyways, sorry I couldn't be more of help. Uh, more help. Uh, uh, that's it. Well, wait, it's real quick. Real quick. Yeah, real quick for you is four minutes. Shut up, shut up, Hey, Nastasia, Dave, Booth Boys, <laughs> anyone else? It's Steven in bed It's local. bed Love the show. It's my daily subway listening. You've led me to further cultivate and pursue my own curiosities in the kitchen. Question. You went over deboned rolled turkey somewhere around episode 150, but I couldn't find it. I've deboned and rolled whole chicken a la Jacques Pepin. Jacques Pepin. Are there any major differences when boning out and rolling a turkey? I'm thinking 10 pounds with bones. I have no circulator, but do have a pressure cooker, electric uh, oven, and convection oven. Uh, and then you had a question too, which I don't have time for. Any ideas for stuffing? I'm thinking sausage, homemade bread, and lots of spices. Sounds good. Don't forget egg. Uh, egg sausage. I like to throw mushrooms in. And I was told mandarin or orange slices are bad, but I love them because that's what I grew up listening. On deboning a turkey, the main differences are they're usually bigger. They're usually frozen. You really want to thaw it. You really, it's very easy to lose track of where your fingers are in a semi-frozen bird when your hands get real cold, and that's kind of when you get sliced. Inside-out rolling boning where you don't cut the meat is a lot more difficult in a turkey because of its side. But if you're just going to do it where you cut down the back and open it Jacques Pepin style, it's not that much more difficult than doing uh, a chicken. The only thing that's uh, harder is popping the joints is more difficult, like when you're popping the joints out to break them out because the joints are stronger, because they're bigger. The main difference and the thing where you're really going to have trouble is uh, the tendons in turkeys are ridiculous in the legs and very hard. So you're going to lose a lot more meat if you're ripping out the bones in the legs versus uh, chicken where the tendons are a lot easier to remove. So the tendons are the big thing. And Nastasi tells me I don't have time to talk to you about how they used to have a machine that could rip the tendons out and why they don't bring that back. But it's important. We can talk about it later next time on Cooking Issues. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.